Welcome back. This is Kelly Gregg of kellygregg.com, G-R-E-G-G. And I hope those of you listening to this uh, have listened to the introductory podcast that I made. Otherwise, I'm going to have to repeat a few things so that you know what's going on. Basically, this is a Reader's Digest condensed version of the book Diet and Health, which is a book that I have written and I'm selling on my website or at Amazon. My website just gives you a link to Amazon. Uh, This book concerns the problem we now have of a 40% incidence of obesity, prediabetes, and diabetes in most of the Western civilizations. This is present wherever there is a Western diet. It wasn't always like this. It appears that this has predominantly been increasing over the last 120 years, especially if we compare this to the previous 5,000 years. And the question is, why is this happening? There are many theories, and I'm going to tell you why I believe this is occurring. Not only that, at the end, I'm going to tell you about a maintenance diet for the common man, a diet that will hopefully prevent these diseases from occurring. We're going to talk a lot about diabetes because that's the prototypical metabolic disease. My ultimate goal is to prevent your developing diabetes. At the same time, I've got to do something about these people that already have it. So what we're going to do is if you have type 2 diabetes, I'm not saying I'm going to cure this, but I can help you manage it. If you have pre-diabetes, I may be able to prevent you from getting diabetes. However, in both of these conditions, you will have to go on a different uh, maintenance diet than the common man. Those of you with obesity, some of you will be able to go back on the common maintenance diet. Others will have to be on a different diet. In any case, I'm going to talk to you about the ketogenic diet, which is the best weight loss diet uh, that I know of. But to be clear, the ketogenic diet is a weight loss diet. It is not a lifetime diet. It's probably not a healthy diet. It is not a diet you should be on for long periods of time. But it is a weight loss diet. And once you lose the weight, you're going to have to go on a different diet. And it's going to be different from the diet you were on previously. For this podcast, I'm going to go through diabetes and begin the journey through metabolism, nutrition, and food. Things that you are going to have to understand in order to understand most of the series. This is a series. When I initially envisioned the book, it was going to be in four parts. The four parts were going to be uh, diabetes, prediabetes, and obesity. The second part is the ketogenic diet. The third part was on fasting and autophagy. And the fourth part was the maintenance diet for the common man. This was done because of economic reasons. These books are for sale individually on Amazon, and it is an economic uh, benefit to have books approximately 120 pages long, and uh, you can be priced within a reasonable price range, and they're able to be able to put on audio tape uh, fairly easily. It ends up after I wrote the last book that I added an additional book, Bread in the Modern Diet. Really, there's five books. The last one is really just an addendum to the maintenance diet for the common man. However, in each of these books, I've had to repeat some chapters. The chapter I've had to repeat is the information on metabolism, nutrition, and food. Hence, each of these books have that chapter. I'm only going to do this once on this uh, podcast. And in fact, on the diet and health book, it is only done once. But I'll warn you up front, if you buy the other books, you're going to hear some material repeated in each of them. Now on to the subject of diabetes. 
Diabetes is a condition in which you have an elevated blood glucose level. This elevated level may be because you don't have any insulin or you could have too much insulin. You'll see how this works out as we go along in the podcast. But regardless, we can always consider diabetes to be a condition of elevated blood glucose. For most of our history, we did not know what glucose was nor how to measure it. But even then, over 2,000 years ago, man was still able to make the diagnosis and call it diabetes. The physicians from India figured out that ants were attracted to the urine of some patients. Along with this, there were other symptoms such as fatigue, excess urination, weakness, and early death. Many different treatments ensued, none particularly effective, except for a decreased food and sweet intake. Remember, they figured this out before anyone knew anything about carbs, fats, or proteins. No one knew anything about glucose, except they knew that some things tasted sweet, and that if you ate enough of these, you seemed to get fat. Actually, that will be the ultimate conclusion of this book. So, as you can see, I didn't think of this. This has been around a long time, although not nearly as prevalent as it was today. By the 5th century AD, these guys also figured out that there were at least two types of diabetes. There was a third type they described, that being diabetes insipidus, which has nothing to do with glucose, and I'm going to completely ignore it. So, this is not a book about anything having to do with diabetes insipidus, which is a disease not of glucose, but a lack of antidiuretic hormone. One type of diabetes, and they were calling it diabetes by then, affected the young, and the other type affected adults, mainly the fat ones. Since the urine was sweet, diabetes was considered to be a kidney disease. In the Middle Ages, they figured out that when someone got stabbed in the pancreas, they also developed symptoms of diabetes. Finally, in 1776, glucose was able to be measured in the urine, and the medical students did not have to taste patient's urine all the time, which uh, was a great event in their lives. At that time, we knew there were two types of diabetes, and they had something to do with glucose. One type usually resulted in early death, the other was more chronic. Even then, there was no treatment except diet therapy. Oftentimes, that diet therapy was just to give a limited amount of food. That was mainly to the young patients. The older patients, that was their main problem, is they were taking too much food, and really, you couldn't talk them into not eating as much by then. Same as it is in modern day. Around 1900, we were removing the pancreas from various animals and finding out they developed diabetic signs and symptoms. In about 1910, someone figured out the islets in the pancreas were producing a substance that was responsible for glucose control and called the substance insulin, mainly because cells in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas were producing it. Finally, in 1923, we were able to purify the extract from these cells in the pancreas inject it into a human and see the glucose go down. Diabetes appeared to be a disorder of insulin, not a disorder of glucose. Now we finally had a treatment other than just diet, and over the ensuing years, many different types of insulins have been developed, all designed to lower your blood glucose level. And in fact, we've got pretty good at doing that. Now we call this condition mainly type 1 diabetes. Although injecting insulin in the old people that have had type 2 diabetes for a long period of time works just as well as injecting it in the young people. You see, the insulin works fine. Diabetes is not a problem with the insulin. Diabetes is a problem with either not enough insulin or, as we will soon find out, 
too much insulin. Prediabetes is self-explanatory. It is what happens to you before you get diabetes. Now we've arbitrarily determined that we're going to call prediabetes when someone's hemoglobin A1c is between about 5.7% and 6.4%. I'll talk to you more about hemoglobin A1c and what it is later in these talks. In any case, we've decided that a hemoglobin A1c level between 5.7% and 6.4% is prediabetes. When you get to the 6.4%, your average blood sugar is around 150. Remember, your normal blood sugar is going, supposed to be around 90. If it's between 100 and 125, that is the fasting blood sugar, we're going to call that prediabetes. If your hemoglobin A1c goes above 6.5% or more, we're going to call that diabetes. These are not particularly noteworthy physiologic levels, but as time has gone on, we've had to draw the line somewhere, and everybody's agreed that this is the line. The reason I say that is because just because you barely are in the diabetic range doesn't mean that you're not in the gray zone for prediabetes. Just like obesity, these are arbitrary lines, and there is a gray zone in between the two. So when I say that if you have diabetes that I can't do anything about it, I mean real diabetes. Real bad diabetes in the sense that you're having to take medication every day to keep your hemoglobin A1c around the 7% range. Now, just as prediabetes is a precursor to diabetes, obesity is a precursor to prediabetes in many cases. Obesity can be described as an excess amount of fat such that you are at least 20% above your ideal weight. This is an extremely inaccurate measurement. If you look at the weight tables, you will discover it seems to be skewed towards skinniness, such that your BMI or basal metabolic index seems to be the weight that you were when you were 16 years old. And nobody over 40 has that BMI again. Also, we're not measuring your fat. We're just measuring your weight. So if you're a weightlifter, you're always going to be in the obesity range. Nowadays, we're going to weigh you. We're going to put this information in the uh, electronic medical records. And there's going to be a, a red sign pop up that says, this patient is obese and you need to talk to him about diets. Even though you may only have 5% body fat and be able to bench press 400 pounds, it's going to be silly for your physician to tell you you're obese. But in fact, that's what the EMR says. In real life, most people have a pretty good idea when they're obese. They know their body pretty well, and it, it ends up that in most people, their weight is pretty steady for several years. You may have noticed this yourself. When you're 16 to 30, most people don't pay much attention to what they eat. They eat something similar to the traditional diet of history. You eat when you're hungry and you stop eating when you're not hungry. For most people, that seems to work pretty well. In other words, for most people, their weight barely changes from year to year. Despite the fact that if we were feeding you intravenously, it would be a difficult task to be able to regulate your weight so exactly. Yet, you're able to do it without even thinking about it for a long time. Unfortunately, it appears as time goes on, most people begin to notice they're weighing a little more each year. And most people begin to notice their clothes don't quite fit as well each year. And most people can figure out, you know, I'm getting a little fat. And almost everybody's first instinct is to say, I need to stop eating as much and I need to exercise more. 
which as we will find out as time goes on, this is a terrible way to maintain your weight. It fails virtually every time people try it, and people usually have tried it numerous times before they go to some other type of diet, such as the grapefruit diet or the ketogenic diet or whatever diet. Almost everyone has tried and failed the eat less and exercise more diet. In fact, it's difficult to find any studies saying that this is a treatment for obesity that works. It simply does not seem to work very well and for good reason. People fail this diet all the time and the main reason they fail the diet is they get hungry. I'll talk about hungry later in the uh, series, especially when it revolves around fasting and autophagy. But needless to say, you've probably experienced just this yourself, that you've decided, I know I need to eat a little less, and maybe I need to exercise a little more, and maybe that'll make me lose weight and not be fat. And especially for those listening to this podcast, most will agree that just just doesn't seem to work. I mean, it may have worked for a few months, but it just was not a permanent solution to my slowly getting, let's call it, fat. I'm not going to be cruel, but I'm going to keep calling it fat because if you are gaining muscle mass, we're not going to call you obese. If you're gaining fat, then we're going to call that obese. So when I say gaining weight, I really mean gaining fat. So it ends up people who are obese also have a condition, for the most part, called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is the first step toward obesity. It's also the second step toward prediabetes, and it's the third step toward diabetes. So we will discuss insulin resistance and why we develop it. And the reason we develop it is not because we don't eat less and exercise more. Now, before you go crazy, obesity does not always lead to prediabetes. However, most prediabetics have been obese. And prediabetes does not always lead to diabetes. However, most prediabetics do get diabetes. So how about we start at the beginning, and what I want is a maintenance diet for the common man such that they don't get obese, and consequently such that they don't get prediabetes, and consequently such that they don't get type 2 diabetes. Okay, let's get back to the lingo of what is diabetes. I am going to simplify things by saying that there are four types of diabetes, type 1 through 4. I'll let you know that this is not the traditional classification. We're going to start with type 1 diabetes, which most of you will know as juvenile diabetes. Then we'll go on to type 2 diabetes, which we will discover is related to insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetes is commonly found after years of high-carbohydrate eating. Then we will go on to what I will call type 3 diabetes, although at one time this was known as type 1.5 diabetes, or latent autoimmune diabetes of adults. A seemingly normal person around 30 years of age who eats well, is lean, does not appear anything like the normal type 2 diabetic, suddenly shows up with elevated blood sugar. These people have an autoimmune condition by which their beta cells are slowly being destroyed. Subsequently, they suffer from a lack of insulin, the same as type 1 diabetics. I'll go into more details of this disease later. And finally, we will have a classification that I've determined to call type 4 diabetes. This is a condition by which 
someone with type 2 diabetes eventually quits producing insulin in their beta cells for various reasons. Consequently, they start to look like type 1 diabetics. To get it straight, you have type 1 diabetes, juvenile diabetes found in children who simply do not have insulin. We then have the classification of type 2 diabetes. This occurs over a long period of time as the production of insulin by the pancreas slowly increases. The increase is due to a condition known as insulin resistance in which it takes more insulin to achieve the same results. Let's get it straight, there's nothing wrong with the insulin. It's just that the receptors of the insulin aren't quite working as well. If you have this long enough, eventually you will quit producing insulin entirely. Before that had happened, you actually had an elevated amount of insulin, and that has contributed to obesity. If you have type 2 diabetes for a long enough period of time, eventually you may develop a type 4 diabetes in which you do not have enough insulin. Then we're back to treating you like someone who has juvenile diabetes. Let's get back to type 1 diabetes or juvenile diabetes and I'll give you a little more information about that condition. The book I've written really has little to do with juvenile diabetes. If you have juvenile diabetes, you have a health care provider. They're the ones that are and monitoring you throughout your life. Type 1 diabetes begins with conception. I say this because diabetes appears to have a strong genetic component. Identical twins have a 50% concordance rate, which means that if one twin has it, the other has a 50% chance of getting it. Non-identical twins have a 10% chance of concordance. Normally, we would expect about a 0.3% chance of getting type 1 diabetes. As you can see, genetics has something to do with it, but exactly what it has to do with it is not completely known. There definitely is a genetic component, but like many genetic diseases, this may be multifactorial. It appears that something initiates an autoimmune response that damages the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas. We know that autoimmune disease incidence varies around the world, and it ends up so does type 1 diabetes. So now we have identical twins in which one develops type 1 diabetes but not the other, despite both having the same environment. I think we can all agree that genetics does have a role to play in this, but probably not the mutation in one gene. Like many diseases in cancer, more than one gene is probably involved. Similarly, it appears the environment has something to do with it, just as it does with other autoimmune diseases. Is this a virus or a bacteria, an environmental toxin, some factor in the diet, or perhaps a change in the gut biome that precipitates the immune reaction? Uh, the answer is still not known. Speculation abounds, including me. We can detect autoantibodies in many type 1 diabetic patients, but not all of them. So the etiology is a little blurry to me. The etiology may be important to determine the cause of disease, but not the effect of treatment. We don't need to know what caused it. We do need to know that insulin is needed to treat it. So we have an elevated glucose level, which is the definition of diabetes, and the basic defect in this case is an absence of insulin. In this case, the treatment is going to be to give the patient insulin. For the majority of history, this was treated with a low carbohydrate diet which reduced the need for insulin. But today the treatment is simply to give insulin to self. However, 
Diet control is still required. If you are going to artificially replace the correct amount of insulin, you need to pay attention to about how many carbs you are eating. As these mainly young people grow up, they still will have the problem of elevated insulin levels if they eat a high-carb diet since they will be taking more insulin. With all the problems that we will discover associated with higher insulin levels, as these mainly young people grow up, they may develop the same problems related to higher insulin levels as the type 2 diabetics. It may be wiser for the adult juvenile diabetic patients to have a lower carbohydrate diet simply to avoid the risk of high insulin intake. Also, if you have a lower carbohydrate diet, you don't need as much insulin and it can save you some money. Now, I'm not proposing this for the young children who have juvenile diabetes, but for the adults with juvenile diabetes, it may be wise for them to actually monitor the diet more closely than they used to be and consider a limitation of carbohydrates. All right, let me review this briefly. Step one, you were born with a genetic disposition for type one diabetes. There's nothing you can do about that, and regardless of your diet, you may get the disease. At least I think so. Since the rate of development is lower in some parts of the world than others, it possibly could be related to the early diet. Right now, I don't know, and I'm going to say there's nothing you can do about it, but maybe I'll change my mind as time goes on. Step two, you develop symptoms and have high glucose level. High glucose levels are generally not good for the body. High glucose levels with no insulin is deadly to the body. Step three, you start insulin and monitor your blood sugar to avoid too high or too low a glucose level. You count your carbs and dose appropriately. Since you will be doing this for over 50 years, you might as well try to keep the insulin level as low as possible while maintaining a normal glucose level. To do this, you may need a somewhat low-carb diet. How low depends somewhat on your age, but as an adult, you might be able to go fairly low. Exercise can increase the amount of glucose absorbed by muscles through a mechanism that does not require insulin. In addition to a low-carb diet, this may also allow you to decrease your total insulin burden. Now remember, all these statements I have made primarily apply to adults. For children, just do what your doctor says and don't screw around with manipulating your diet too much. Step four, someday we may be able to give pancreas cell transplants or provide immune therapy when we first see a decrease in insulin production. This may extend the time where insulin is not required. Someday we may be giving children a vaccine to prevent the development of type one diabetes. Despite this, diet will always be a part of the treatment. Now for the disclaimer. I may not be a real doctor, so don't take anything I say here as medical advice. In fact, I may be an AI simulation developed in China, and nothing I say may make any sense. Everybody with type 1 diabetes has a health care provider. You're going to take their advice, not mine. At this point, I'm going to have to interrupt this story to tell you about metabolism, food, and nutrition. Otherwise, you really won't understand much more about type 1 diabetes, and you really won't understand type 2 diabetes. In addition, we're going to keep in the back of our minds that insulin resistance is what is driving type 2 diabetes. Remember, the point of this whole story is that I want to avoid your getting type 2 diabetes. And 
I want to avoid your getting insulin resistance. And I want to avoid your getting obesity. In order to do that, you're going to have to understand food, and that's what I'm going to go over in these next series of podcasts. So now you know that the incidence of type 2 diabetes, obesity, and prediabetes is rising in Western civilization, especially when we compare this to the previous dietary history. Now you know that this has something to do with insulin, but it's not juvenile diabetes insulin. The problem is not that there is something wrong with the insulin and not that you are not secreting insulin. The problem is the abnormal secretion of insulin. And now you know that this is somehow related to insulin resistance, whatever that is. See if you can remember at least those few points, because for the next uh, podcast or two, I'm going to be talking about metabolism and nutrition. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to remind you when I get back to talking about type 2 diabetes and what diabetes is later on. But first, I just have to teach you something.